I'm Andrew Blumenfeld. This is the Money in Politics podcast. The 2020 elections demonstrated once again that you can have all the money in the world and still not win. After all, there are many factors that influence the outcome of an election. And while having enough money to bring your message to all of your potential voters is key, it isn't sufficient. Obviously, what the message is, is extremely important. And to talk about that today and much more, I'm speaking with Democratic messaging guru, John Rowley. John Rowley is the founder of CounterPoint Messaging, a company focused on political and advocacy campaigns at the local, state, and national level. He has worked on over 500 campaigns in 47 states, and those campaigns have a winning record of 91%. He's here to discuss the intersection of money and messaging, but first, a quick message from CallTime AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by CallTime AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, CallTime AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. I'm joined now by John. John, thanks so much for being here today. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I don't know how to answer the question, how are you these days? Because it's such a weird era, even if things are going better for us than, you know, 99% of the people on the planet. So, uh, <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, I, I never knew that. Be crazy how, to how complain. How are you doing? But it would be such a challenging question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> crazy to complain, but sometimes I still do. I totally, totally sympathize with that. Well, let's start with a little bit about you and your background so that our listeners just know who they're hearing from today. What has your work largely been about? And how did you get into it to begin with? What brought you to politics? Right. Well, when I was in school, if you were interested in politics or campaigning or things like that, there really weren't any career paths. I mean, you didn't, there weren't the campaign management programs and things like that. And if you went to a guidance counselor, they would say, oh, you're interested in government and teach a go to law school or go work for the government. And all of those options didn't seem that interesting to me. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I wasn't connected enough to know about the world of campaigning and things like that. And 20 years ago, it was a little bit more of a secret society. If you weren't connected or you're member of your family wasn't a labor leader or a pack leader or something like that. I essentially kept asking people, hey, isn't there something to do politically? Because I was very interested in that. Kind of had a background in corporate communication and entrepreneurship and in terms of academically. And finally, somebody gave me the card of this guy who was a media consultant and essentially said, hey, this guy makes TV commercials for a living. And I... Uh, I called him 12 times until he returned my phone call and eventually kind of <laughs> cold called my way into his company first as an intern and then kind of as a, I'd already worked in television and radio before I graduated from college and and so kind of became a creative collaborator. And then by the time I was 25 or 26, I think I was probably the youngest partner in political consulting or at least a media consulting shop at the time. And so that's my inglamorous rise. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, with that kind of grit and perseverance that you may have tried your hand at fundraising at some point. Yeah, right. Exactly. like you would have been exactly. a good fit for that. Maybe in another life, I was a uh, fundraiser. So It sounds like it. Tell us a little bit about CounterPoint Messaging in particular, what the work you all do there is kind of your mission and focus. Yeah. Well, we've got messaging in the name of the company, and I think messaging is really a kryptonite for Democrats, a lot of days of the week. I mean, you look at 
how the elections turned out. And I can't imagine outside of not losing in the, the second biggest upset in recent memory to Donald Trump again, how we're really happy with where we are. They're mm -hmm. wildly more optimistic sense of where the party would be. And so I think one of our big problems is we're just not that good at messaging. One of the top U.S. Senate races, I'm not going to quote which one and try to make anybody look bad, but there was an article written where they had like, I don't, I can't remember, 2,300 ads online and not one of them had the word jobs in it. So anyway, I've been a long believer, if not evangelist, about trying to get from the grassroots to the consulting folks to the people who want to run or who are in office, just much better at emotional messaging, which there's a way to do that while staying true to yourself. So I think one one of our strengths is really trying to understand how message delivery works, no matter what medium or channel we're using from mail and field to all the different ways we can reach people online to TV ads and and whatnot. So that's kind of been a life's work. And so the messaging and now these days, I think the integration of how do you make sure you're hitting people on multiple platforms and mediums with the right message over time. And I think it's another blind spot we have, whether it's due to a lot of the different independent money floating around or just that you've got so much political work to be done that oftentimes you have people who maybe they technically know how to make an ad or design a mail piece or something like that, but they aren't experts in, hey, how does this fit together as a campaign? How does this 8, 12, 20-week program, what is, we've got all of these ads and mail pieces and canvassing and texts, but what does it add up to in terms of messaging? And so that's a real focus of ours and to be real message czars on our, our teams and to really sometimes get medium agnostic, even if it's not in an area of our specialty, just to try to make sure that we're really spending that extra time on message development to make sure whether it's a turnout message, a persuasion message, or targeting people of color or swing voters or independents to really hone in and spend the extra time and, and then figure out how to make those messages come alive and resonate with people. I think the economy, I think for too long, our messaging has been driven by kind of almost a Brookings Institution sort of mindset around maybe a few pollsters and how things are worded to where, oh, well, we've got to have a policy of minimum wage or pay equity or policy paper behind something where how people vote on the economy is very much how they're moved and feeling. <laughs> I mean, every, every time you hear a politician talking about an economic statistic, they're dying because it's much more about how the economy is resonating with people. And so, you know, I think our, our market position is very messaging focused, tons of work for kind of people of color, lots of upset races, whether it's a real red area that we turn blue or whether it's somebody who's in a primary and they're down 20, 30, 40 points and we help them come from behind. We're pretty been around for a while, pretty connected in Washington and whatnot, but we've always had our center of gravity in Nashville and outside mm -hmm. of DC. So I think it keeps us a little closer to the people and closer to the campaigns. That's interesting. And there's a lot about that that I want to chat with you about. I'll start with something that you said at the very start of that answer, which is you pointed to all the money that was available, at least to some races in the 2020 cycle. And I think something else in that that's really interesting, it wasn't just that they had a lot of money, it's that, and you pointed this out, 
the modern tools available for messaging and reaching voters are many. And so not only do you have more money than you've ever had, you actually can translate that money into more touch points. I think you said like 2,300 or maybe even 23,000 ads. Um, you know, obviously before the digital ad world, you weren't making 2,300 or 23,000 TV ads. So, so I guess you have an instance where plenty of money, plenty of tools, I would say, and yet still, to your point, a gap, still a lot of work to do. And you talked a little bit about how kind of what you all do is try and bring a cohesion to the message. But can you say a little bit more about what else it is that you think coming out of 2020, Democrats have to be thinking about if you have the resources and you have the tools, it's not enough. What else do you need to be thinking about to make sure that your message is resonating? I think there's also one of the big takeaways, and I think debates that I don't claim to have the answer to, but I think also the timing of our communication now, when people are making decisions, what we saw in a lot of mm. places, and we picked up a number of seats and and on down the ballot, we had a, overall, we were involved in some successful efforts, but the timing of voting is now different. The Democratic 50% voted mm. much earlier than the Republican 50%. And we had we had a few races where we won and a few races where we came up short and the Republicans behaved the same in all of them. They so backloaded their communication, I guess in part, maybe based on an electoral theory and maybe in part based on how Trump was moving the center right needle on hmm. absentee voting and early voting. And I mean, in my time in this business, I've been around 500 campaigns. I've watched thousands more and we've all been on the same timeline, <laughs> whether you have early voting or don't, whether it's all election day or not. And I think there now may be, at least in the short term, a very partisan difference on, hey, do we need to peak on October 7th? Or if you're a Republican, are you peaking on November 3rd? And I think how you deploy all those different resources. I mean, when I first got in this business, you started at a low hum and then you peaked on election day. In a lot of places, you now are looking to peak two weeks, three weeks, four weeks out based on absentee patterns, based on early vote patterns, based on just let's get our impressions in before people make their decision, as many impressions possible. So there's a math equation on this. It's not all art and creative and visceral. It's like, what's the equation of how many impressions we can get before our 50% makes their decision? And I think there's kind of a race to that this year. And that's what we spent a ton of our time doing because all the different states had different timelines. And so to me, that's a great subject of open-handed, honest debate between people who may not even like each other on the progressive side is, hey, how do we do that better? Is that going to hold? Let's really watch 2020 what happens if we have now changed human behavior around elections, unlike anything we've probably seen in a hundred years, just based on COVID, that people have gotten burned into their, their actions of, I need to vote way early. I need to vote absentee. I now mm. understand the places everybody can vote absentee or the 60 and over crowd can vote absentee. Another element to that cohesion, or maybe the lack thereof, when it comes to messaging that you referenced before is the role of independent expenditures. And this mm -hmm. is also where messaging and finance really intersect quite a bit. 
clearly there's just been an enormous growth in the amount of money that is spent on independent expenditures. And I think our listeners largely understand that these independent expenditures, as the name implies, exist independent of sort of the main campaign apparatus and, you know, aren't coordinating on message and aren't coordinating on strategy and so truly are acting as sort of parallel campaigns. How does that disrupt a campaign's effort to have a cohesive message? And from your perspective, as someone who's worked with independent expenditures, with candidate campaigns, with advocacy groups, sort of all these different players, how do you think about the role uh, that everyone can play in trying to coalesce around one message or at least a constellation of messages that are sort of in harmony with one another? Yeah, the thing that's fascinating about it is, again, years ago, you used to think about these campaigns as one-on-one affairs, boxing matches or Mm. tennis or whatever your analogy is. And now it's more like five Mm -hmm. on five or 11 on 11. I mean, Georgia, (laughs) I mean, it's I don't know how many entities on each side. I saw one of the reports. It's more like a football game where there's 11. The bad part of that is it really dilutes the candidate's voice. So I think some of the priorities and some of the biggest mistakes I see made are a couple of things. One is whoever is going to spend the most probably ought to get communication into a public legal sphere to send a message to the others. If the candidate's going to spend 70 percent of the money, but there's still going to be a significant independent expenditure, they probably need to lead in the public sphere with their ads and other things what they feel like their message is. If it's an instance where the I mean, I've elected people where 80 to 90 percent of the dollars spent mayors and other things were through independent entities. Then they need to get out there early of signaling what they're going to do again legally. Hey, we're going to do TV. Hey, we're going to be in mail or field or whatever. So the candidate can then prioritize the gaps or the IEs can prioritize the gaps. And I think one of the biggest challenges, because consultants who do digital and media and messaging and mail, where inherently there's a little bit of a know-it-all quality. One of the biggest mistakes (laughs) I see made is is take the lead of somebody else. Hmm. If the IE is like already spending money, take the lead and fill in the gaps where they're not. And instead of recreating a whole set of messaging, maybe pivot off of the messaging they've already invested money in, especially if it's attack messaging. And so as opposed to create a whole second set of a whole second stream, follow the stream, mm-hmm. <laughs> paddle with the current as opposed to against it. And so I've never seen more diminishing returns in spending. I mean, the main race, the South Carolina mm-hmm. race. I mean, I don't even know why they kept spending at some point. I've rarely been involved in a race where I had to go and just say, gosh, there is no other way we can earn votes. But in a lot of these races, I mean, they just they transcended one singular race. And at some point, I think it's just, it's overkill. And I think in a lot of these races in red states or competitive states, I've seen a number of instances where the more intense the communication gets, the worse it gets for Democrats. It essentially nationalizes the race. In 2010, epically bad year for Democrats, I was involved. I had a lot of members of Congress in tough races that year. And there were two congressionals going on in Ohio. And both of them were kind of first, second term members of Congress. One had better polling than the other. The the DCCC essentially quit funding one campaign, doubled down on the other campaign for two different members. Hard to even imagine that happening today. The person they left on the beach performed seven points better 
than the person they spent the extra $2 million in. And so I don't know that I wouldn't blame necessarily one race did better because of the IE effort, but when you turn it up to 11 on partisanship, it's having an equal and opposite reaction. I would guarantee you that was a big part of the gap between Jamie Harrison's polling of why everything looks so close that last month. I mean, they just spent so much. It was diminishing returns. I think there became an equal and opposite reaction. So, Yeah, well, and I sort of assume at some level that in Maine, that was the Gideon campaign's perspective, because I understand they did end the campaign with quite a bit of money still in the bank. And one has to assume that it has something to do with having drawn a similar conclusion. I wonder, though, other people I've spoken to on this podcast have suggested that that also just has a, a problematic effect down ballot and maybe explains some of the poor performance down ballot is that you had some of these banner top of ticket Senate races that were spending astronomical sums were to your point, perhaps nationalizing and perhaps creating this equal and opposite reaction, but that that was felt down ballot by a bunch of other campaigns that didn't have nearly as many resources to kind of break through whatever that top of ticket noise was. I, I'm doing my best to summarize some other people's positions, yeah. but any reaction to whether or not that resonates with you? It's always impossible to prove what impact one campaign can have on another campaign and another race. There were so many ads and so much money spent. I I don't presume to have studied everything that that was done in some of those races, but it sure seemed like there was infinite possibilities for creativity to not, again, not turn up the attacks and the typical ads. And those specific races, we heard how much they were spending and were just so just amazed that you could even spend that much money on television, that we started having (laughs) ideas for some of our clients of, okay, if we had too much to spend, what kind of anti-ads would we do? And so we did, um, in particular for Congressman Tim Ryan, he had a pretty tough race up in Ohio, and he also is uh, a big advocate for mindfulness in schools and meditation, things Mm -hmm. like that. So we made an ad for him, which said, hey, 2020 has been a bitch of a year. Do you want some calm? And then we showed 25 seconds of a bird in a bird bath, just kind of, you hear, bird, you hear bird sounds, <laughs> bird sound effects. And the only Tim Ryan in there is he comes on and says, I'm Tim Ryan and I approve this message. And, and so it was, <laughs> kind of, it was kind of a serenity ad. And it was the sort of thing we just made as a joke in reaction to some of these other things. We ended up putting it on the air and it was a big social media and paid media hit Deepak Chopra retweeted it. But it's, I mean, it's, you know, and I I don't really, I don't want to be too harsh on whoever was running a lot of those efforts because it's just, it's the sort of thing probably most of them have never seen in our time in this business, that sort of that amount of money. And and you hate to end up with 14 million in the bank like she did or 20 million like Jamie Harrison did and lose by a half a point. But when you get beat that bad, I think that's really some, it's a time for reflection for all involved. And, uh, yeah, and, and sadly, the Washington, D.C. is not a very reflective town unless there's been a war with body bags. That's about the only time it's a very reflective place. So, <laughs> Yeah, and no, I, I said before, I'll say it again, one of my favorite kind of 
axioms in politics is what they say is like, you're never as smart as on the day that you win, never as stupid as on the day that you lose and how it's just emblematic of the, to your point, I guess, lack of reflection that happens because obviously there are winning campaigns that have done all sorts of bad things that we probably shouldn't repeat. And there are losing campaigns that did all sorts of wonderful things that we should probably aim to repeat. (laughs) Well, two areas I think we really ought to do some reflection on is we underwrite for some of our candidate work, a post-election research project where the couple days after Hmm. the election, we go in and again, this is at our expense, but what mediums worked when, Um, what messaging worked, what information did you like getting? Like a few years ago, it was very interesting to see how people would react to a door knock versus a text message. Mm -hmm. And from some post-election research that we saw, it made us really lean into text messaging as almost another medium for us to deliver video to people and mm. making it part of our media mix plans, not just a organizing tool or a get out the vote tool as it was used four or five years ago. And some of it is very confirming and makes us look very good at what we do. And others very humbling how much attention span, even when you do everything in some races where we did everything, how how much information they actually had. There was one survey where we had field and digital and TV and radio and mail and had a just a super high profile race. Everybody spent money and still 30% of the people couldn't give us a tangible reason why they voted for the guy who got 67% of the vote in a big upset. I mean, it was just, wow. it's a very humbling process that, you know, maybe we're, maybe we're not world beaters in all the different lanes of what we're doing, even when we win. It's really fascinating, especially because you probably won't be surprised to learn that you're one of the few that I've ever spoken to who systematically embarks on that endeavor. So the insights (laughs) it must provide you being able to collect that kind of postmortem feedback. So immediately after election day, I'm sure is a tremendous asset to all of your sort of go-forward messaging. You mentioned that one of your campaigns recently, and I know you, you've worked over cycles with Congressman Tim Ryan, and you know you all are. You said you, you know your heart's there in Nashville, and it really strikes me that this is a very complicated moment for messaging if you are a Southern or Midwestern Democrat. And this is obviously an area you know well. So what's your take on Democrats who are either literally in those geographies or just sort of align with the experience of those Democrats in wherever it is that they may be around the country? How are you advising them when it comes to navigating their messaging in this moment? In a strange way, I think a lot of middle American Democrats have a huge advantage over a lot of our nerve centers on the coast in terms of being a little more in tune with the some of the middle of the road people we're trying to reach. I mean, Youngstown, Mm. Ohio voters are a little bit more like upstate New York voters than anybody between Brooklyn and DC. I mean, and, and, (laughs) or Los Angeles and San Francisco. So I think in, in some ways, I think they have their hand on the pulse of American voters a little bit better. I mean, Tim Ryan's got a great sense economically of what he wants to do and what the concerns are. Now, electorally, in a lot of these places, the earth is moving underneath folks. I mean, and there are parts of Ohio, parts of the South that not too long ago, we were taking Republican seats from them at the legislative and congressional level and, and winning governorships and Senate seats that it almost feels hopeless right now. So 
even if we don't invest in every race in some of those states, we need a little bit of the wisdom of a few of those kind of middle American politicians. And it doesn't have to be ideological. I think a lot of their insight isn't about the AOC wing or the Connor Lamb wing of the party, Bernie versus Biden. I mean, I think it's just a little bit more about being in tune. I think we have a Hmm. an epic amount of smugness and condescension in our party right now. And Hmm. I think that if just no matter how confident I've ever been, if the 2016 or 20 election doesn't rein your arrogance in as a practitioner (laughs) around politics, whether you're in money or MySpace or or wherever, (laughs) it's a business that humbles you every cycle. So if you don't have a little bit of reflection and leave the chest pounding at the door. I don't know what's wrong with you at this point. (laughs) Let me go back to our conversation before about message cohesion and introduce an element here, which is the donor versus voter universe, right? Often very different groups of people. And our conversation even about how you kind of fine tune these messages, depending on where you are in the country strikes me as relevant to the conversation about how you think about the message that is targeting a voter or prospective voter and a donor or prospective donor. Any thoughts about that? I mean, when you're, you said sort of at the outset, I think you referred to yourselves as sort of messaging czars, right? So even though you all may not be deeply involved in the day-to-day fundraising operation or even necessarily yeah. um, kind of the the architecture of the fundraising program, how do you think about or advise campaigns to think about how that message ought to be cohesive with the rest of the campaign messaging? Well, and when, or does once, it need to not be? Yeah, right. Once you have a message, I mean, it, it should flow through everything. I think the challenge, though, is you have three kind of distinct lanes. We've got paid communication of paid digital, media, mail, however we're paying to get our message out. You've got organic social media, which has a through line to that, but is different. And then, and then there's that national, I'd call it almost the national fundraising message versus the the local fundraising message. And I mean, the thing that's going to appeal to make you the Jamie Harrison of the next cycle is is not going to be that related to what you're communicating <laughs> on TV. Now, mm-hmm. they, they shouldn't be different, contradictory, but it's just dr- dramatically different. The response, and you probably know this better than we do, on some emails and fundraising, and we put up a seat in Tennessee's uh, state senate can't Democrats had not picked up a seat in 15 or 16 years. We picked up one hmm. this time and outspent seven to one. But the sort of things that people would respond to about an email was something about choice. And you look at like where undecided voters are and choice probably isn't in our top 10 for a persuasion hmm. message. And so it's, I think there's always a way to like lean in and feel good about what these challenges are. So the good part of it is, is, Okay, these candidates aren't one note candidates, you know, so I mean, even if you're kind of down to a one commercial, one message sort of campaign, you've got this whole mosaic of communication. So as long as it's something you're comfortable having on the record, you're going to have a little different communication to raise money online, social media. I got a lot of grief from some of my different stakeholders and whatnot. Ah, your candidates running too liberal and I go, okay, what are you basing this on? Well, there's social media posts and whatnot. And I'm like, well, social media is largely the choir or people close to the choir. It's, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not people outside the buildings. There's a through line of our persuasion message reached is one group, social media, 
is, is moving a little bit more toward the base and the email is you're really turning it up to 11 there. <laughs> and uh, as long as it's consistent. And so I think the good part of it is all of that probably gives you a pretty full picture of the candidate, but they're very distinct mediums. And I don't, I don't know that everybody's thinking about it that strategically. And you definitely have a little push pull of the email people are like, this will raise money. Say this about Trump today. And the, and the people who read the polling are kind of like, okay, let's let off Trump for this week. <laughs> no Trump emails for, <laughs> for this week. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And I think that that distinction between those different groups, on the one hand, you saw a lot of that take place this cycle because you you had, again, you know, we've talked about them a bunch, but these Senate races that became so national in their attention and that attention seemed to be very tightly bound, obviously, to their ability to raise yeah. these huge sums of money. But those messages, especially given the states that these candidates were running in, were likely, I would assume, not the messages that they were really putting up on television ads and trying to reach undecided voters on. I'll be interested and I'm curious your thoughts on sort of what the future path is of that. If you think that they end up a little bit on a collision course with each other, if you think a small dollar donor in Los Angeles will just be forgiving of chipping into a what they would consider a conservative Democrat running in Kentucky. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you think that that's, that, that's just sort of a sophistication that we're all just going to develop in the political space or if those things are, are headed into one another as potentially. A- yeah, there'll be some of that. I mean, a lot of the donors figure it out anyway of, of how, I mean, <laughs> honestly, we really don't have that many conservative Democrats anymore. I used to work for a lot. I mean, I used to have more members of the CBC than about anybody. And I also used to have more blue dogs than anybody. There just really aren't that many. Hmm. What a conservative Democrat was 10 or 15 years ago is just not the same. So, I mean, I just don't see many conservative Democrats anymore. So it's all, it's more about uber progressive, progressive or moderate is really the is where the dial is in our party from my point of view. And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I do think the way that message clarity is important is, and what we try to do is I try to give every campaign a one pager on what our message is. And if you're really doing message delivery effectively, even if you're really dialing it up to 11 with email, you still can work in some of our key message points. Even if we're really kind of fanning the flames or doing some fun things on social media, there's still a way to get back to some of those message touchstones. Now, it, it may not be our best liked thing, and maybe it's only one line and a crazy 45 second Facebook live or whatever, but there's always a way back to the message. And I think the, the mental barrier a lot of progressives have is they think message discipline, but when you've got message clarity, it opens the door wide open for creativity. If you have total clarity on what the message is, it really empowers the grassroots team, the online team, the consulting team, the candidate. And so they're just there's this limiting belief that if we're on message, we're some sort of left-wing version of Sarah Palin writing crap on our hand with a Sharpie or something. And that's just not... <laughs> I mean, Sarah Palin in her own right has some message skills, but she gets most of them half right. She's not even halfway to being a Jedi on these things. So, <laughs> Last thing for you, just again, looking ahead into 2021, into the 2022 cycle. Mm-hmm. What are you looking for? What do you think is going to kind of define some of our challenges and our opportunities on the messaging side of things? One way things have been different the last four or five years and the previous 75 is ticket splitting. And so as we go into 2022, now that we've got the White House, 
I mean, are we going to be able through our messaging, quality of our candidates, quality of our campaigns to open up some of this ticket splitting again and hang on to the governor of Kansas, be competitive in Ohio again, finally turn the Florida governor's race around, or is everything going to just kind of be this lockstep? People are balkanized by the federal environment. Mm. So I, to me, I think part of the solution, there's a grassroots, there's an online solution, but to me, part of it is, is how do we have more emotionally resonant messaging? <laughs> and it's certainly not going a whole U.S. Senate campaign with tens of millions of dollars and never talking about jobs when the COVID economic meltdown is the big challenge. And so I think I think that's going to be a big thing, this timing around early absentee voting and how, how mm -hmm. early you need to begin digital campaigns. I think, honestly, some research around what is actually mattering and not mattering around mm -hmm. all of the money being spent online is a big part of it as well. And somebody needs to be working on the lie factory factor. If this was an arms race, we are fundraising better than the Republicans. We are digitaling at least as well as the Republicans. <laughs> we are recruiting candidates as well as the Republicans. We are turning out our base as well. They are lying their ass off way better than we are fighting it. And so hmm. I don't know that we need our own lie machine, but I mean, who is working <laughs> on that problem? I mean, if somebody had $25 yeah. million to throw around, forget about independent expenditure ads or registering voters. And there, I know there are some people working on it, but it is stunning how high Joe Biden's negatives were. I never would have thought. Mm -hmm. I had, we had polls where his negatives were as high as Trump's negatives. They're wow. a lie machine. And it, a lot of it's not Fox News or Rush Limbaugh. It is just the strident social media lie factory that they know no low they won't go beneath. And mm. that is something that I don't think anybody's combated well in a major race right now. So Yeah, no, that's a very, I think, like astute uh, thing. I'll have, we'll leave it at this. We'll call that a call to action to all of the many millionaire and billionaires <laughs> yeah. who listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, yeah, put your money behind that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, there's got to be a better solution. But if it's an arms race, we need a lie factory. I mean... <laughs> or, or at least to better spread the negative stuff we can document against the Republicans. I mean, we just don't do that as well. I mean, I think there's some basic wiring difference among the progressive mind, and there's brain science behind this. But I mean, there's an argument that a lot of human motivation comes down to fear or love. I think the challenge is, yeah. is an election often comes down to what people are moving away of, and they're better at fear than we are right now. And so what is our antidote to that? Is that the master love or two times the spending on love and one time on fear? I mean, that's just, this is something that consultants are supposed to never say. I don't know this answer. <laughs> we're, we're not, we, you get kicked out of the political consulting club if you ever say, well, I just don't know. I mean, it's, so, so what is the answer to that? Who are the smart people working on that through technology or creativity or behavioral research. And so that is my, that is my moonshot challenge for the progressive movement. Yeah. It is, it, messaging has been our kryptonite up to the last couple of years. I think our kryptonite right now is the Republican lie machine. I mean, it is killing us. It's killing us. I mean, how else do you explain 73 million votes for this guy? I mean, surprised right. if you lined up a thousand democratic political consultants, myself included, you included, 
we all would have been surprised by that the day before the election, I think. I mean, so, I mean, you can't yeah. sit around and act like we knew this was coming. I mean, I talked to people, a lot of the quants in our party who I'm very down on right now, where we were getting all these rosy projections of how things were going in mm. 20. And I asked a few times, I should have like yelled, who's <laughs> modeling the red wave to counter our blue wave. Well, it's not the happiest I've, note to conclude I've identified on, but it is the problem, I, and I've not pre presented the solution. I'll go to work on that. Well, I, so. it's actually the perfect time to be presenting, to framing the problem just that way, If even if you don't quite yet have the solution, because I think in the aftermath of an election, I'll tie this back to the conversation we were having a few moments ago about the work that you and your firm do to be reflective right after an election and how important that is. This is the time to do that. So I'm glad you're raising the questions. I, I do hope more and more people are trying to answer it. And more than anything, I appreciate your your willingness to be brutally honest with us today. So thank you so much for, <laughs> for joining the podcast and sharing your insights. It's been great chatting with you. I enjoyed it. Love what you're doing and appreciate you having me on and keep swinging. Awesome. You too. Thanks so much. Take thank care. You. See you, Andrew. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the CallTime AI blog at www.calltime.ai and follow us on Twitter at CallTime AI.